Indeed, as we've already noted, both in song and in announcements, as well as in the prayer, the thankfulness that we've been able to appreciate to be able to be here today, it is truly a joyous opportunity to come together on the first day of the week to fulfill the commandment to offer worship and homage and reverence unto the God of heaven. How often the Bible reminds us that not only is worship simply something that is very important, it's actually essential. Our life is missing something that it needs if we fail to worship God as we should. Brother Ted, as he made the announcements a few moments earlier, perhaps in addition to that one thing I might mention, having to do again with our puzzles that are available. So uh, uh, if you haven't picked up your puzzle yet this morning, we're nearing the end of the book of John. So the puzzle for chapters 19 through 21 is now available. If you wish to have one, please just take one there from the literature rack in the, on the left as you exit the auditorium. As we consider again our lesson for tonight, just a little word of, of wisdom about that, please come back and be with us if at all you can. Because as we gather together again to learn another lesson from the book of John, we'll find that in chapters 15 and 16 are some very vital matters that weighed heavily upon the mind of our Savior. And again, he was nearing the time of his own death. Let's listen closely tonight. Please come back and let's study John chapters 15 and 16 together. This morning, dull of hearing, from Hebrews the 5th chapter, verse 11, as you heard that read a moment ago, as we listened to that being presented to us, I suppose one of the statements or phrases in it is exactly the title of the lesson. And I would invite us to give some consideration this morning to not only the state of affairs of those Hebrews who heard that, but what might be the case for me and for you today, and what might be we use from it to help us to not be in the same position that they were in. As we begin that thought or that set of ideas, some introductory ones about where we stand this morning might certainly be fruitful and useful. The book of Hebrews in its 13 chapters is truly a fascinating book. I suspect in some way that could be said of all of the 66 books in the Bible. But Hebrews stands very unique in a number of ways, not the least of which is that in order to appreciate it, one would need to understand a fair amount of the Old Testament for the author, by inspiration, brings many of the thoughts of the Old Testament and directly asserts their fulfillment in the person and work of the Christ. And so it is in the life and work of Jesus, we often see truly what many of the matters of the Old Testament were pointing toward and the ultimate meaning that was to be found in them. But not only in that way, it's fair to note the superseding brilliance of Jesus in, in the book of Hebrews. He stands superior to Moses. He stands superior to the angels. He stands superior to, in fact, any of the Old Testament law of Moses, for he is, in fact, in many ways the fulfillment of all of it. That's just a couple of the things one finds in the book of Hebrews. In fairness, some of the truths contained in it are ultimately rather profound. Our mind grapples with it as we seek to apply it and to comprehend many of the things that are to be said therein. And truly, this book challenges and charges all of us to be more loyal to Christ, to in fact appreciate that if the Hebrews in their state of affairs were admonished to be loyal, what could be said of us? Often we don't face the life and death persecution they did, and yet... Perhaps we aren't as loyal in some cases as they were. 
I would submit to you that those lead us to the fifth chapter, verse 11, for the lesson we'll consider this morning. As we begin the first segment of that lesson, might we do so with first some notes about the phrase itself, and then we'll seek to look more carefully at the meaning that is to be found in it. First of all, the middle section of the book of Hebrews, especially beginning in chapter 5, focuses the spotlight ever so majestically upon the priesthood of Jesus. In what way is he the high priest? What functions does he occupy? And how does that benefit you and me as Christians? Since the priesthood of the Old Testament was such a vital part of the law of Moses, Aaron and his sons who occupied the high priest, it was important for those of the first century in Christ to understand the priesthood of Jesus. And it so also is important for you and me to appreciate that today. And thus the Hebrew writer devotes three chapters, three whole chapters, to an exposition of the high priesthood of Jesus. It is in that regard that one sees the work of the priest and hence the work of Christ. One learns what the benefits to the children of Israel were of the work of the high priest and hence in pattern what's the benefit for you and for me of the high priesthood of Jesus. In addition, one also notices in clearness in chapter 8 especially the shortcomings of the Mosaic system and its priesthood. But there are no shortcomings of Christ's priesthood. He is set forth to us in this book as the perfect high priest. No shortcomings at all. Nothing that he is not able to accomplish that he should be able to for you and for me. And in addition, we note the perfection and the absolute glory that associates to the high priesthood of our Savior. It is truly a great thing for our study. We, of course, will not devote our attention to all of that, but only one part of it, for that's the part that we reach when we come to chapter number 5. It is said in verses 6 and 10 of Hebrews 5 that Christ's priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Here immediately to our attention is brought a name of Old Testament lore found first in Genesis 14. It'll be found later again in the 110th Psalm. As we grapple with the significance of what it means to say that Christ's priesthood is after Melchizedek, it is to be noted that immediately following that we find the text of our lesson this morning. It clearly seems that it is with that notion of Melchizedek in mind that the Hebrew writer makes this statement. Let me read verses 10 and 11 of Hebrews chapter 5. Please read them as, as I read them to us. Called of God and high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. The inspired writer, being led by the Holy Spirit, directly stated in verse number 11 that there were many things that he had to say. There were many things that he wished to share with the Hebrew individuals, many things that were no doubt of great importance and that were of essential character, many things that they needed to know and things that would have benefited them in their walk with the Savior. Many things to say. But the verse doesn't end there, unfortunately. For it says, and hard to be uttered. 
hard to be uttered. Isn't it interesting to consider that these truths, and let me ask you to note verse number 11, these truths, you see, were hard to interpret. That's the actual Greek meaning of the word that appears there. The King James says hard to be uttered. That word really doesn't mean they were hard to speak. It's not as if one needed to speak a Russian language or some other thing like that. That word uttered means hard to interpret. In essence, it was difficult, if you please, to explain. In other words, here was a truth or a set of truths in itself appearing in the natural order of heaven's revelation, but yet it was difficult to explain. It was hard to interpret. It was not that which one could easily appreciate and comprehend. Of the things concerning Melchizedek and the priesthood of Christ, there were some things, you see, according to the Holy Spirit, that were difficult to explain. Things that were, in fact, hard to interpret. It's certainly apparent to notice here that there's directly a distinction and a characteristic that is here stated. I've tried to list that for us. I believe we all understand that there are some parts of the holy and divine will of God that are somewhat easy to appreciate. The truth in it is easy to grasp. It's easy to rest upon the mind. It's directly appreciable to interpret it. In fact, Hebrews 6 verse 1 even makes note of that idea. You might note that that's not far forward from the text this morning. But let's read simply verse 1 of chapter 6 where it says, Therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection. And it is significant that the Greek text says, leaving the first principles of the doctrine of Christ. In other words, there were some things that were elementary. There were some things you should have known a long time ago, the writer said to these Hebrews. And he even lists what some of these things were. For instance, the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, the laying on of hands, the matter of the resurrection of the dead, furthermore, the matter of eternal judgment. He says these first principles of the doctrine of Christ, these were elementary matters. These were introductory. In terms of the overall scheme of God's revelation, these were easier to comprehend and interpret. That stands in contrast to what we just read in verse 11 of chapter 5. Some things are hard to interpret. Some things are difficult to explain. Might you and I thus never forget that when we approach the Holy Scriptures, there are some meteor matters that you and I must study in great detail in order to fully comprehend or appreciate it. It's not going to come to us in 30 seconds of study. It's harder to interpret. I suspect some of us sometimes are a bit confused by that point. We think all of God's Word should be immediately interpretable. It should be easily assailable. But according to the Bible itself, that's not the case of it. There are some things that will require greater effort upon our part to thoroughly understand it because it's deeper. Because, like this matter in Melchizedek, it will require a greater assimilation of truth found throughout the sacred scriptures to put it all together. That thought, in fact, leads us to the next point. 
Just because something is hard to interpret doesn't mean it's impossible to interpret it. The inspired writer did not say that. Hence, God still expects us to devote with diligence the effort to interpret it. It's not impossible. However, our love for the truth and our love for God and our love for the things revealed by Him will prompt us with those matters and those times of investment of study. To state that it's hard leads us to notice the state of affairs of these in, in, Hebrew, in the Hebrew letter. Why was it hard to interpret for them? Why was it difficult for them? Was it because they were, if you please, stupid? Sometimes we use that word in our modern language inappropriately, and we use it incorrectly. To describe a person as stupid is to describe a person, according to the dictionary, as one incapable of learning. Thus, be careful when you call somebody stupid. If you're using it as an insult to them, that's first of all wrong. But if there is literally a person who is mentally incapable of learning, then that word is used properly. But just to call somebody stupid in any other way is an improper usage of that word, isn't it? And yet here we notice, why were these Hebrews in a position to find it difficult or hard to interpret these matters? It's not because they were incapable of learning. Let's note again verse 11. It says, hard to be uttered, that is to say, difficult to interpret, seeing ye are dull of hearing. The problem was they were dull of hearing. The problem was they were, in essence, were being described in this way. It's not that they couldn't learn it. It's that they were dull of hearing. I wonder what it means to describe them as dull of hearing. We might notice again rather carefully that word dull can be used in a variety of ways, can't it? In fact, as we think about the various ways it can be used, might I invite your attention to what that word means here? The word dull is the translation of the word nothros, and in fact, the Greek word actually means lazy or sluggish or dull. That is to say, that particular word here refers to their response to the truth that had been revealed to them. They had not dedicated themselves in the time invested with enough motivation and incentive to study it as they should. Furthermore, he says dull of hearing. That word hearing merely describes, as we often do, the matter of response, the sense of hearing, if you please. They had been lazy with regard to what they had heard. They hadn't invested enough effort to assimilate it, to search it as would be proper, and to learn the important truths that God had shared with them already. Those matters shed an entire new light, doesn't it, on these Hebrews. Here were eternal truths that the Spirit wished to share with them, but they weren't able to take it because they had been too slothful and lazy to assimilate the simple things that had been delivered to them. As we consider the things that that means, isn't it possible for that to be true still today? For God to have shared with us the eternal glories of the revealed will of heaven, and yet for you and I not to take in the meteor matters of that truth, not because we cannot understand it, but because we have not been responsible with what God has already given. The simple things, we haven't mastered them yet. 
because we've been dull of hearing. We have devoted too much time to worldly things, materialistic things, and have failed in our appreciation, in our study of the infallible, authoritative, inspired Word of God. Can you and I also be dull of hearing like they were? If so, would we suffer the same fate that they did? Would there be great truths of the Bible we would never understand simply because, though they're there, we do not have the maturity to understand them or to, in fact, appreciate the things that are said? In verses 12 to 14, which occurs just after the text this morning, we know that these are things that are true about the statement before us because this is the... Ex Further explanation, verse 12, begins with the word for. That's a linking word. It's a conjunction that ties what's about to be said as explanation of what had just been affirmed. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one, he says in verse 13, that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat, affirmed in verse 14, belongeth to them that are of full age, even to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Thus, far from saying that the Hebrews could not understand it, he said, you by now should have been teachers of others of matters like this. You should have matured, grown, mastered, if you please, at least become thoroughly acquainted with these fundamental truths so that by now these meteor matters of the priesthood of Christ, the order of Melchizedek, that would be something you could understand. It's something you ought by now to be able to know. But because of the fact you have not applied yourself, you still need instruction in the simple, elementary, introductory matters of faith. Thus, you're not able to understand, or you're not able to assimilate these matters now. That's a rather sad statement, isn't it? Can you imagine, if you please, in a rather symbolic way, the broken heart of the Holy Spirit as he had to write something like this? You could have been such marvelous and wonderful servants of mine as you taught and exemplified and spoke these meaty matters to those who need to hear it. But you're not even able to take it yourself. You need the milk of the Word. You haven't grown just like a child who has to begin with that milk. Isn't it interesting to think about the type of nourishment a little baby takes? When it's first born, it can't even take that Gerber mashed up food. That's too strong. It needs nothing but the simplicity of the milk. Finally, it will graduate to that Gerber mashed up carrots and peas and peaches. And finally, on to more solid food beyond that. These Hebrews, it says, were still in need not of Gerber food. They still needed the milk. Does that indicate how little they had grown? How little they had advanced? How little they had matured? And doesn't that serve as a warning for all of us? Where do I stand? And where do you stand? Am I still needing milk? Or at least I'm to the, have I advanced to the point of needing that mashed up food? Or am I now ready to chew on the meaty matters of the Word of God, to employ that in my life as well as sharing it with others? 
that is a rather profound set of questions, isn't it? Each of us can appreciate where we might stand in that regard. That will perhaps lead us to the remainder of our lesson this morning as we imagine some matters that we can use to help appreciate it ourselves. On this next slide, might I help us see that these Hebrew individuals, no doubt, missed out on some pertinent truth because they simply hadn't matured enough to appreciate it. That leads us to notice a few observations because just as surely as these were rebuked, if we're in that same state, the Lord will rebuke us as well, and this text does so. But here are some observations about our nation and maybe about us that we, I think, should keep rather squarely and very firmly in mind. The United States of America has long been hailed as a Christian nation. Our founding fathers founded it that way. As one reads the various documents, such as the Declaration of Independence and various others that were written by those founding fathers, it's clear that they had a view toward the establishment of a nation that would squarely be founded on the truth of Scripture. And it is upon that Scripture that they often relied in their comportment with regard to, to the laws that they enacted. But that, however, leads us to notice that that should, of course, apply not just to a selected few, but to the officials, to those, be it the judges, the various members of the president and his cabinet, at all levels of government, the local level, the state level, the federal level, but also to the citizens at large, all of us, were designed or at least desired by the Founding Fathers to come under that given heading. But that is to be quickly noted. It seems so often that that description is not terribly applicable anymore. As laws are enacted that are obviously godless in character, as people seem to further and further distance themselves from any responsibility to God, God almost has become for many an ignored matter. They think not of him. He has no role, or at least in the mind of many, in the laws or the ongoing affairs of our nation. One could very quickly, I think, at least discuss, is it even proper in a direct way to carefully call us by that name much longer? Because notice the second point. That word Christian is based on the Scriptures. The word Christ is the first six letters of that word. Anything that's Christian, if it isn't based upon the Christ, then the name is used improperly. Just for me to call something Christian is a useless thing. If it can't be called that based upon the fact this book is able to call it that, then my description is worthless. Would the Bible endorse what's going on in our country? If Christ wouldn't endorse it, then it makes no difference whether we call it Christian or not because it's not Christian. Only if the Christ would endorse it, support it, encourage it, in fact, lift it up, that would be the only way that it could rightly be called Christian, wouldn't it? Those matters, in fact, point us to some interesting usages of some powerful notations. In Matthew 28, 19, there near the close of that book of Matthew, the Lord said, beginning in verse 18, All authority hath been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe what? All things whatsoever I have commanded you. 
it is significant, isn't it, that those speakers, those apostles, were granted no authority to speak anything other than what Christ had delivered to them. Thus, when they thus employed the word Christian later, as they did in 1 Peter 4.16, Acts 26, verse 28, Acts chapter 11, verse 26, we learned there the Christian word was used to describe those that were the followers of the Christ. If our nation is not a follower of the Christ, if it doesn't submit to His will, then is it rightly to be called Christian? Later we read also in Revelation, on many occasions that interesting set of ideas, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, which in fact rather quickly brings us to another observation. It is fair to say that the level of Bible ignorance in our land is woefully high, isn't it? If you were to take a thousand people off the street and ask the most elementary questions about the Bible, ten questions, how many, I wonder, would they answer correctly? Questions as basic as, who entered the ark? Just the name of Noah, would they know that? Or ask a basic question like, how many gospel accounts are there? We know there's four, but just the typical person off the street who lives in America that's called a Christian nation, how many would know those answers correctly? In a poll done not too many years ago, very basic questions on that level. The average person couldn't answer two out of ten of them correctly. Two out of ten correctly. Isn't that shocking? Isn't it sad? Isn't it disturbing? And of course the answer to all three is yes. But I would submit that the problem in some ways, at least in our day, seems to even be a bit worse than that. Because what about the church? Notice my fourth observation, if you would. We live in a land where so many will adorn a particular building of worship on a Sunday morning. I wonder if you were to take a subset of that people and ask them some basic Bible questions. How many of them would they get right? Now, admittedly, they were able to correctly answer a few more than the others, but still nowhere near all ten of them. They were only about able to answer half of them correctly. Friend, I would submit to you that should be a bothersome thought to all of us. Here's a nation where not only are the generic people ignorant of the Bible, but so many who claim to believe it are ignorant of it, who claim to rely upon it for their life, to follow it to where they think is heaven, and they don't even know what it teaches and what it says. Does it sound a bit like dull of hearing again? Doesn't it sound like people who, just like the Hebrews, had the opportunity to learn and the intelligence to do so, but they hadn't invested enough effort to study it and to learn the precious precepts of the Holy Word of God? We live in a nation that is, in fact, well described, it would seem, by that phrase, dull of hearing. I would hope that as we come near the last set of ideas in the lesson this morning that we could use it as a charge for ourselves. Three quick points I'd like to share as we draw near the close of our lesson. I sound this warning for us to not only allow us to think more carefully about the sad state of affairs, but to prompt us so that it'll not be descriptive of us, 
may you and may I never be described as dull of hearing when it comes to the Bible. And here are three quick things that might help us to make sure that we never fall into that category. First of all, we need to return to a high degree of respect to this book if we aren't there already. We need to lift high and loudly and clearly this book in our life. To say that is to say that there are so many passages that point that idea out to us. In John 2 verse 5, we read this statement. Mary said it, but how powerful it is for us. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Do it. We should be of a position to appreciate thoroughly and powerfully that this book is the inspired word of God. Respect it and do it. In 1 Kings 22, 18, what was Micaiah's response? In that day of the long ago with regard to that which God had revealed, he said, What the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Micaiah had no interest in claiming any authority or any word other than what the God had told or informed of him. We also see in other passages like Psalm 119, verses 15 and 16, the loveliness that the Word of God should have in our disposition and in the respect of our lives. The interesting fact of some later statements in that chapter. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Verse 140. In verses 129 and 130, the entrance of thy word giveth light. Where do we find the light that is the light of our being? Do we search for it in what we think or what we've heard somebody else say? Or do we search for it in what God has revealed? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life in John 8 verse 12. To consider those matters perhaps prompts us to recall Colossians 3.16, where there Paul said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. May we be eager to allow the Word of Christ to dwell in us. May we be ever excited to not only attend worship services, but Bible study hours. 7 o'clock Wednesday is a vital time. 9.30 Sunday morning is a vital time we need to be here. It's a time to study the Word of God. But not just at those times do we find the time during the week to open the pages and to allow God's Word to infiltrate our life and to sink into our being. In addition to that respect, that does bring us then to this second point in quickness, to study the Word. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? But it must not be overlooked. You and I can open it and spend a minute or two reading it, but at least occasionally, perhaps frequently in fact, we need to study it. That means to give diligence to appreciate the things contained in it because, as we learned earlier, some things are hard to interpret. Some things are more challenging to our understanding. That doesn't mean they're any less important. It means God expects us in our love for Him to devote the required time to study it. May we be eager also to do that. In Acts 17.11, wasn't it said of the Bereans that they were no, more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and as a result, what did they do? They searched the scriptures daily. Isn't it fascinating that that word search means to examine with care, 
to examine thoroughly. Thus, they examined the Scriptures with careful and diligent investigation. Perhaps also of note, we should avail ourselves of various helps that will assist us in our study of the Bible. Do you have a Bible dictionary that you like to use along with your study of the Scriptures? What about a concordance? Perhaps there's some wonderful software available. Do you uh, perhaps allow it to help you understand more thoroughly the meanings of words? All of us should be able to be in a position like that so that we could better understand the lovely nature and the powerful truths contained in the Word of God. But then finally, and lastly, might we appreciate then that this would set in our mind the value of spiritual growth. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, we read in Romans 10, 17. Hence, as we invest that time, it certainly is not time unwisely spent. What better investment of our time could there be to invest interest and study in direction toward the Word of God? Various passages there, one of which is that text in Hebrews 6, verse 1. Remember, there were some things the Hebrew writer says that were introductory and elementary. Have you and I advanced past those points? For those of us that have been Christians for several years, are those things already simple and well understood? If not, maybe we have been too dull of hearing. Those matters ought to be simple for us now. We should be ready for some other things perhaps some of those more meaty and more profound in those deeper matters of the Word of God. The closing verse to 2 Peter chapter 3 still reads as follows, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That powerful and lovely commandment challenges us still to grow. Are you and I growing as we should? Are we maturing in Christ as we should? Remember we said milk on to the mashed up foods and finally on to the actual meat? Where are you and I on the scale of matters? Are we to the meat stage? Or are we still in the need of growing and in fact using milk? The Hebrew writer said those that use the milk are unskillful in the word of righteousness. That means they're inexperienced. They haven't invested the experienced time to grow in the faith. In summary this morning, we notice that it was not a compliment to the Hebrews that they were described as dull of hearing. He said they should have been teachers, but yet they weren't. We might note today that if you and I are dull of hearing, that's no compliment to us either. We need to, in fact, use these helpful ideas to respect the Bible, study it with intensity, and thus to grow spiritually, to help us not be dull of hearing. Today, if you're not a Christian, if you've never begun that journey with the Lord, understand the great truths He has in store. He wants you to understand. If we could help you become a Christian today, that's accomplished by obeying the gospel. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His lovely name as the only begotten Son of God and then be baptized for the remission, for the forgiveness of your sins. All that's taught in the Bible and if we could assist you in it, we'd be happy to do so. If you have become a Christian at some point in life, but you have allowed yourself to become dull of hearing, you've allowed yourself to have little interest, it seems, in matters divine,
Today would be a wonderful day to make a public statement to many that you're making a change. You're repenting of that error. And you're desirous of again living in fellowship with God and with brethren who are faithful. If we could pray upon your behalf today, of course, upon your repentance and confession, we'd be happy to do that as well. If we could be of assistance in either of these ways, we're going to stand and sing in a moment a hymn of encouragement. Please use that as a brave and courageous time to make these changes in your life. And if we can assist you, let us do that while together we stand and while we sing.